Whatever happens, I should have a chance to be like brought into the open. If there's a new idea or a new invention or a new gas or a new whatever, you know, or a new idea of thinking, it should be brought at least into the open, you know, and be respected as, as being new and probably, a, you know, a decent change or a help for the, you know, like the human race or whatever. But still, I keep carrying these same old burdens around with you. And you have to be a freak in order to be different. Queen. And I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, the classical music podcast hailed by the New York Times as required listening for industry leaders and listeners alike. Congratulations, Scott. You did it. You made it. You did it. Right. <laughs> and, and on top of it, reckless. And, yeah, and yeah you were also named a reckless agitator, so you're in trouble as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious. It's to not me. just me. That's hilarious to me. We'll get to that, though. How do, how, do you, how do you feel just generally? You're, you've been published in the New York Times. We both have. Good feeling? I'm, I'm Good fine. Feeling? I'm fine. Oh, yeah, no, oh no big deal? Oh, my bad. My bad, Scott. <laughs> no big deal for you? Okay. <laughs> well, it's a big deal for me, and it's a big deal to have everyone listening. Thank you so much for tuning in to Opus 98 of the Triloquy Jeez. podcast. Um, in addition to being a uh, must-listen, this is the podcast uh, that also comes with dubious factual claims that can, what, undercut otherwise strong arguments. Otherwise. So, <laughs> well, but the arguments are strong. That's what I heard. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I might, I might file the opinions under dubious but not necessarily the <laughs> sure. facts. And we're going we're gonna to get into that a little bit, but a huge shout out to Joshua Barone. I was, I was honored to, for, for Triloquy to be named. I think that's a huge deal. I'm so proud to have made it to the New York Times, not in conjunction with an organization. We made it there. Right, right. Me and you there. Yeah, shout out that. to Evan as well. And Evan we made too. It. Yeah. And we couldn't have made it there um, without all of you listening. So thank you once again for all of your continued support. Support for this opus of Triloquy comes from Sandra Seton announcing Night Trip, an opera with libretto by Sandra Seton and music by Carlos Simon, who we've had on the Triloquy podcast. It is streaming with a give what you can price. If you would like that link, I will have that posted in the description of this opus and at triloquy.org. Scott, the downbeat for this opus comes from Jimi Hendrix, I'm sure one of your uh, heroes, or at least folks you listen to as a guitarist, right? Yeah, I came to him late, though. Uh, I, I didn't really, I, I guess, discover the genius, mm-hmm. uh, discover all the talent until I was probably my mid to late 20s, probably. So I, I found him late, even though all the people that I went to high school with were big fans. That famous performance of the so-called national anthem mm-hmm. on electric guitar comes from Jimi Hendrix. That's right. right. That's yeah. right. And I really love what um, he had to say in that down in, in that clip that we shared and across his his uh, life. I think there are a lot of gems. So be sure to uh, check those out. I'll have that full interview. And in we have that as, as the well. downbeat because uh, we're coming to the end of National Guitar Month. Yeah. Yeah. So. And, and I have to say you have uh, raised my appreciation for the guitar. You you gifted me a guitar. I know I now know how to um, play a few chords yeah even the bar chords my my index fingers is getting stronger you're getting a workout <laughs> yeah uh today's guest is the one and only titus underwood returning to the triloquy podcast black 
beauty. That's that's all I have to say in more ways than one. Titus is is really doing it. Emmy winner. He's branching off into film. We talk about all sorts of stuff. You know how me and Titus give it up when we get together. Yeah, it was fun to meet him too. And I, I just have to say that uh, right from the get-go, he seemed to welcome me into the circle. So yeah. I, I appreciated that. And he doesn't do that with, with, with everyone. Oh, well, then I double appreciate it. Thanks, Titus. Appreciate you. Um, In the triloquy today in the fourth movement, we're going to address black trauma as it applies to the Juilliard School and something they had going on to film um, and and just to, you know, everything in general and, and how, you know, trauma is not what we need to really be focusing on anymore because, as I'll say at the end, life is traumatic enough. We don't need it. Right. Uh, fictionalized, dramatized. As always, a lot of great music to share, but first, we're going to check our accidentals here for Movement One. We might have a a few new people this week, thanks to the New York Times article, so how about we just refresh these accidentals? So in music, you have sharps and flats and naturals. Sharps raise the pitch, flats lower the pitch, and naturals cancel out one of the other accidentals. Um, we attach that to news stories and things in the world in this first movement as um, things that raise our spirits uh, with a sharp, things that sort of lower the mood for a flat, and then for naturals, you know, we just kind of kind of go with the go with the flow. So we're going to start with a sharp next to this New York Times article titled "Classical Music Podcasts Begin to Flourish." At last. At last. <laughs> what do you think of that concept? Just off the top, how the idea of podcasts have always been out here or been out here for a while, and finally, classical music is catching up to the trend. I don't know. Uh, how many classical podcasts out there? We've got uh, Classically Black, Yep. ours. There's... Um, there's Sticky Josh, Notes. Joshua Weilerstein's. Yeah. Right? That gets mentioned in the article as well. Kwanis has a, a podcast, right. uh, Arts Administration Bitch. That's what it's called. <laughs> There's a Double Read Dish. There, I mean, there are lots of them out there. Right. There are lots of them out there. Um, I think sometimes it's easier for classical music, so-called classical music podcasts, to kind of fall in the shadows because of the nature of our field it's right. just not going to have the same listenership as if Beyonce can you imagine if Beyonce did a podcast you know they gave Michelle yeah. Obama a podcast you know all of these people you know yeah. it, it, who are huge just get huge audiences so um while I do think that classical music is sort of late to the party when it comes to podcasts I think it's important to acknowledge that there are a lot of them out there and um, that right. have been just, around for a while. Let's just say that classical hasn't been as quick to capitalize on the podcast genre. How about that? Yeah, yeah. So concerning our portion of this, let me read a little bit. Um, <clears throat> it's Well, one of the things that I uh, will mention before I forget, uh, one of the other podcasts featured here, Mission uh, Commission, mm-hmm. its host and producer um, are going to join us here for Opus 100. So we'll, we'll dig a little deeper into the uh, concept of classical podcasts and, and all that sort of thing. But I'll, I'll read a little bit here. It says, Triloquy has always cast an eye on classical music that's both critical and caring. Truth. But, but its mission was freshly urgent as the field was forced by the killing of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement to face its failings and racial representation. One thing I, I will say 
is that we were here before before that. Before that. Mm-hmm. Like we 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 definitely didn't focus on that as much, maybe because it it wasn't the world we live in now. You right. Know? But Opus One, you know, shout out to Mary and Dooley. We talk about HBCUs, you know, from from the very start. Um, anyway, I don't I don't have to read um, all of it here, but my my reaction is that. Um, I'm happy. I'm, I'm I'm happy with this. I'm not even with the whole dubious factual claims thing. You know, <laughs> again, I say the a, a, little, a little shade is good. The opinions are dubious. But, but what do you think? Well, we also have to we also have to say that every article that we have ever talked about is linked. So we have the receipts there to back yep. up all of our our dubious facts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, also, uh, I am no provocateur. I am not an agitator. Uh, I'm. I'm not. I'm. I, you are the agitator, sure. and I'm. And I am the slightly overly concerned uncle going. Oh God! Oh, be careful! No, Garrett, get down. Or, from or as we said off mics last week, I'm the crazy man, and you're the handler. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, but but one point that I do want to make here, I, I did this on. Uh, I made a video on Instagram when we talk about these dubious factual claims. What I see is dubious is what we're fighting against, is why we built Triloquy to tell a bigger story, uh, to show a bigger picture, and to dismantle the actual dubious claims of classical music exclusively being a Western European sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The dubious claim that Beethoven is, uh, you know, should be at the center, that the canon and and those other composers should be at the center. That's what I think is dubious, you Mm. know, when we're talking about dubious factual claims. Yeah, I get behind that. I get behind that, but you you have to admit though that I'm more the straight man here, you know. Oh, of course. Just uh, keep it, uh, yeah, oh, keeping but, ev- keeping everything moderated. Yin, yin and yang, ebony and ivory. There we know? are. <laughs> <laughs> um, who do you think should be paying attention to this story? And by that, what I mean is classical music, um, looking for every way to innovate and grow and survive. You know, in this in this ever changing world, who needs to be paying attention to the idea of classical music podcasters starting to be um, uh, consequential players on the chessboard. Interesting, because that's not what I thought you were going to ask me. Um, I, As far as people who should be listening to Triloquy or classical or just, pods in... Yeah, in, paying attention to the fact that classical pods are a thing. Oh, okay. Well, um, for, I would say, because in, in this article, is it Joshua Barone wrote? Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Joshua writes about how uh, one opus in particular, 95, is a, a must listen for what is it industry people well the podcast in general industry leaders and listeners alike is okay. the quote yeah well so i think the folks that should be listening to it are the white program directors and music directors of radio mm. stations around the country um the white gms of orchestras opera companies things like that um because these conversations are happening whether they want to admit it or not. And I think that if they could get clued in, in a manner like a podcast, Mm -hmm. something that you can stop and digest and go back to and things like that, um, perhaps it'll help. And not at all to say that we center those white, program director sensibilities no, on this show. No, that's why. Right, that's, that's what why. I'm saying, yeah. yeah. And and that's yeah. a conversation that I have to traverse in some of my other work all the time. Um, when we talk about uh, podcasters in color and other, you know, black-led things, mm-hmm. I often find myself in, in this sort of in-between where, yes, Triloquy is 
most definitely a black-led project. Mm -hmm. It's a project that definitely centers blackness and a perspective of people of color and, and all of that sort of thing. And something that I think white folks, as you have said, need to take in and consider because communities of color, we've always been <laughs> subjected right. to right. the to the white media, right? Certainly in classical music. So yeah. this is just, you know, Triloquy has always been my attempt to show the world, show people what it could look like if we really demolish that idea, the traditional notions of classical music, open up the doors and create a space that includes, you know, there, there, there we are with that magic word, inclusivity, you know, so much more. Yes, the Western European orchestral stuff makes it on this show is plenty of rap. We've gone into country and roots, you know, even a little bit of pop and electronic, rock. you know, and, and yacht rock and dad, dad rock, as you say. Let's yes. <laughs> yes. So, 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 uh, so, so anyway, <laughs> that, that, that's what I, uh, that's kind of what I think about when I think about who needs to be paying attention to again, in, in general, just classical music conversations being a thing and not just these performances. I think that's another important part of what this is. And, uh, Mr. Barone even put it there, you know, by quoting, um, Will Liverman, mm -hmm. you know, there may be people who are very familiar with his beautiful work, his, his music, but not necessarily his, his perspective, right? You right, know, in his story, and, and and that's something else that I think um, podcasts are really bringing to the field of classical music. I wanted to quickly, before we leave this, bring up something else um, that uh, uh, I was thinking about over the week. So on four twenty again, um, the day after we recorded last week, Apple had their big you know announcement of of new products, and one of the things was a subscription service for podcasts on Apple. Um, the title of this article from the Wall Street Journal is Apple, Spotify, and the New Battle Over Who Wins Podcasting. The battle for podcast dominance is on. A pair of announcements this week. Apple's introduction of paid podcast subscription and Facebook's new partnership with Spotify technology to spur discovery and listening on the social network's platforms are the latest for a rapidly growing medium that is attracting top talent and top dollar. I'll put the, um, the link to that in the description, but long story short, Apple is setting it up to where creators, podcasters like you and I can receive um, money directly from the listeners by setting a price on things. And, you know, I think uh, in an effort to sort of combat what Patreon is doing, mm -hmm. um, of course, as this article says, um, Facebook and Spotify are trying to get into the game. So beyond mm -hmm. just, you know, the advent, the so-called advent of podcasting and classical music, you have the big tech companies and the big money companies paying attention they, to podcasting right. and really getting in this game. We're, we're, we're looking at the future here. That's interesting. I didn't know that Facebook was trying to move. Every, everyone is isn't that interesting so yeah. you know yeah. I, I think it's something to pay attention to Triloquy I'm not going to put a, a subscription price on this because you know I, I, I believe in giving it to the people and visit Triloquy.org to make your contribution <laughs> let me say let me, and going back to that article and you know I really appreciate Joshua mentioning our names and yes you're right it is great to be in the New York Times but uh, it's not about me yeah. And and I, I think the 98 opuses that we have show how the guest and the issues of the day are the center of yeah. Triloquy. Yeah. Look, 
when it comes to the photos for every week, even the logo for Triloquy, my face isn't even on it. I right. really, I really like centering the and no shade to people who who work that way, but I really believe in you know centering what we came here to to highlight. Agreed. So. As we uh, transition here to the next accidental, I thought I would share a little um, music by Will Lieberman since he was uh, mentioned here. So huge shout out to him. Thanks to uh, Will for being on Triloquy. I went back to his album, Dreams of a New Day, and thought I would share the track called Jamie. It's actually a short one, so we'll share the, the whole thing here. Take a listen. He sits on a hill and beats a drum For the great earth spirits that never Garrett, before we go any further, I have to throw in a flat and a rest in peace to Shock G. Did you hear about this? Shock G? Yeah, of course. From Digital Underground? Yep. Man. So he passed away. Um, I didn't get a cause of death or anything like that from the uh, news story, but man, Sex Packets was... was it, it might as well have been stuck in my CD player in my car and going and doing karaoke... I can do the Humpty Dance without the prompter screen. And you know, I'm going to tell you what you reminded me. Thank you for bringing that up. When I think about the Humpty Dance and 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 earlier, early, I'll, I'll say mm-hmm. hip hop, mm-hmm. I, I can imagine a lot of people who were maybe sitting around and saying, well, what do you think about this hip hop stuff? Do you think people should be paying attention? And, I'm, and I imagine a lot of white people just kind of shrugging their shoulders and look at where we are, yeah. you know, 30 years yeah. later. So that's my point when it, when it comes to like, having these conversations about podcasting because these people shrugging their shoulders are going to be the ones left in the dust in 30 years. That's what I'm Good saying. Good point. Good that, point. That's, that's what I hope people understand. So, cute. So yeah, shout out to uh, Shock G. Shall we listen to a little bit of the Humpty Dance since we're here? All right, stop what you're doing because I'm about to ruin the image and the style that you're used to. I look funny. But yo, I'm making money, see? So yo, world, I hope you're ready for me. Now gather round. I'm the new fool in town, and my sound's laid down by the underground. I drink a bottle of Hennessy you got on your shelf. So just let me introduce myself. My name is Humpty, pronounced with the Humpty. Yo, ladies, oh, how I like to funk thee. And all the rappers in the top ten, please allow me to bump thee. Classic hip-hop. That's what, that's what we're talking about, classical music. When we talk about mm. um, the American art form of of hip hop music, rap, yeah, that yeah. is classical, and it was such. They, they were just such a fun band. I mean, every every single track was just a, a party for me. I loved it. The music is one thing. Shock G also had a very iconic look. The visual, sure, was a huge part of the thing. And uh, in this next accidental, you have uh, there's a scientific sort of spin on visuals connected to music. Right. But, you know, very recently back in Opus 93 with Rissy Palmer, we touched on uh, the idea of um, uh, black people in country don't get put under the country label because of being black, mm-hmm. right? And we talked about a little bit about um, uh, respectability uh, in, in, in that appearance, right? Yep. So a study has come out in musicianscience.org that... Uh, Music competitions are judged on sight more than sound. How about this finding here? Uh, Essentially, what it gets at is uh, a group of people, anywhere from 100 to 200, were given uh, five- and six-minute clips 
of competition audio, mm-hmm. competition video only, which I don't know why they would put that in there, and then competition audio and video. And they tried to see who would guess correctly who won the competition. Now, it shows here over 85% of the participants reckoned before the experiment started that the audio only, duh, the sound, would prove to be the most useful in determining the competition winner, compared with less than 15% thinking that on the video only, right? Mm -hmm. Turns out, that the video-only clips elicited a correct prediction over 50% of the time, whereas audio-only clips resulted in less than 30% accuracy in that study, which just shows that um, that we privilege, and that's what it says here in the article, we privilege the visual over the auditory. You brought up Rissy Palmer, who I'm thinking about right now is uh, Adadeji, Adadeji Ogunfulu, the horn player. He was mm. back on Opus 58. One of the things that he kept driving, you know, back then uh, we were really talking about the audition screen. He kept driving the problem of taking the audition screen down because of this issue that mm. you're directly speaking to. Yeah. He even noted, excuse me, y'all, this is always after dinner. He um He noted that people even say, well, I want to see... What what we're getting, what we're, we're getting, or or what you know, uh, you know, and so I I think it's very interesting. And an audition, especially an orchestral audition, is nothing more than a competition. Sure. At the end of the day, um, the uh, person conducting this study said experts and novices alike privilege visuals above sound. The very information that is explicitly valued and reported as core to decision making in the domain of music. Moreover, when sound is made available along with video, it led people away from the actual visually-based competition outcomes. Mm, That's interesting. I mean, we can talk about how, you know, for auditions and that sort of thing, this is why it's important to keep it blind. I think the other side of the argument is the visual is important, and Mm -hmm. that part of it is a thing. Think about seeing um, a, a concerto, let's say a violin concerto. The soloist isn't just going to stand there and bow just regular. Well, you hope not. Like there, like there's going to be some Corey. There's going to be some dancing. You better you know, be. There's, there's yeah. going to be something. So I think it's fair to to note the other side of of, of that mm-hmm. issue of a visual, even though it's important to sure. um, you know. Um, I don't know what what's the what's the moral of the story that I don't know. We need to be I, more. I, I guess I, I'm going to put a natural by it because yeah. in it's surprising, not surprising. Sure. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I guess that it's an interesting study that somebody was actually able to put together, you know, such a large scale study like this and and come up with such surprising conclusions or not surprising conclusions. I think what I'm thinking about is just uh, to be more active with our listening, even if we have the visual to really pay attention to actively pay attention to our ears and, you know, try to um, to do that. I remember. Uh, what movie was it? It was a Spike Lee joint of uh, the Black Klansman. Or is that what it's called? Black Klansman? I, that was a movie. I think that was the first movie in a long time that I could think about listening to the score more than I'm paying attention to the visuals really? at, at certain points. You know, a, a Terrence Blanchard uh, score there. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that, I think that's something I'll pay more uh, attention to. I, I wanted to, I'll go ahead. And just, uh, wasn't it just last opus we were talking about? Um, uh, adding the visual to this medium in order to, you know, the, what the millennials are talking about with TikTok and oh, right. 
all that. So go back and listen to um, Last Opus 97 with Khalil. As far as the, all oh right, the, the visuals and all that sort yeah. of thing. Um, speaking of the youth, speaking of uh, Gen Z, one thing that I thought about uh, with this whole concept of visuals and music and how our eyes tell us a certain story, I was thinking about uh, the last time we were in Detroit for the Sphinx Conference at the uh, final competition. Uh, one of the finalists was Aaron Olguin, the bassist who was the crowd favorite, you know, because at that competition, the crowd favorite, yeah. you know, there's a vote. And I'll tell you, Scott, year after year, the crowd favorite doesn't tend to win the competition. So again, I think there's something there, yeah. how we're judging with yeah. our eyes. Aaron Olguin was playing that bass. Yeah, what did I? Piece. What did I tell you at the end? Of, it was a phenomenal performance. Let me start by saying that. When he was done, why did, I told you he's probably not going to win, and why? Because I couldn't hear him. Yeah. In in points, right, right. There are points in it where you and and that's just acoustics of a bass right. with an orchestra. We were way up in the balcony, you know. Not to say that it wasn't a great performance, but again, I think it, that there's something to that idea that mm. I think we're going to have to start to pay more attention in music competitions uh, and all sorts of competitions moving forward as the world opens up. What if we start thinking more about how our eyes are? Uh, are fooling us, mm. or what if performers start thinking about you know how the how the visual is an important part of it? Again, like I said before, it goes both that, ways. That I think you're probably going to see more of that, don't you? Of of musicians taking advantage of or trying to turn a deficit into uh, something more positive about their appearance or well, the appearance they, of their instrument. They're going to be so happy to be back on stage. Don't, <laughs> don't let me have been a pianist now. <laughs> Why hair, hair flying everywhere? <laughs> It, it, it would always be dramatic. Would it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, to get us to our final accidental for this first movement, I wanted to revisit that performance by Aaron Ogwin at the uh, 2020 Sphinx competition. Uh, we were talking over dinner, Scott. 2020 did have a few weeks of of not chaos. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is February of 2020. Uh, the piece of music is by Andres Martin, his bass concerto, again, as performed by Aaron Ogwin and the Sphinx Symphony Orchestra at the Sphinx Competition 2020. For our final accidental in this uh, first movement, I'm going to put a sharp next to some more uh, Detroit sort of actions. This comes from Classic FM title, Patron Attacks the Detroit Symphony Over, Quote, Offensive Season of Black Composers and the Classical Music World Responded. I'm giving so it a, a sharp, first of all. It's a fan letter. I'm giving it a sharp because they posted it. Yeah. A lot of these folks, a lot of these institutions will, would never post something like Shout this. Shout out Daniel Gillum down at WUOL who did the same thing during, uh, he got a, a letter from a listener who was uh, concerned about the amount of black composers that were being heard suddenly. And he read the email and then said, and by the way, the, the rest of the hour here is going to be nothing but black composers. Here's some William Grant still. <laughs> yeah. 
And and that's what uh, got me that, that that got my attention, yeah. and I'm sure that got a lot of people's attention. So yeah, we so so side note one, step out and name these things. It's not it's not people are so afraid of call out, but how are we going to know certain issues exist if we don't name those issues? Yeah, I want to I'm going to read this letter that uh, the patron sent to the Detroit Symphony. It says. Directors and trustees, I am writing this with great dismay at the posting of your upcoming season program. I have been a season ticket holder for quite some time. I find it offensive and discriminatory (laughs) that you are planning your upcoming season focusing on a particular ethnic group. I feel you are doing so just to jump on the current bandwagon of playing the diversity card. If we as a society truly care that we are all equal, we will stop labeling groups as particular ethnicities and just consider us all as people and humans. I feel you could and should structure your programming and events as musicians and their contributions to the arts or a style, not whether they are blue, black, yellow, plaid, etc. I come to hear, enjoy, and experience the music, the accomplishment of the artists, and I feel you have lost sight of that or never had the sight at all. I will not be renewing my season seats to the DSO, nor will I be attending any concerts there or contributing to the the DSO any longer. If there's anything that I can point out from this is that racists love to bring up these plaid people, these polka dot and purple people. Yeah. I, I said on Twitter, if you start talking talking about, I don't care if you blue purple, just sit, just get away from the keyboard. Just get away <laughs> from the keyboard immediately. <laughs> yeah. So shout out to um to folks over there, this is um, Eric Ron Mark over there at the DSO, I believe, who posted that. In this article, you can see other people responded. They cited Anthony McGill's retweet and other people. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, I, I suppose it is. I suppose it is what it is. You have any thoughts? Um, I I think it's really interesting how so many of these letters come through with no signature mm-hmm. because they know they don't want to actually own. They know the it's problematic that they're that they're espousing, uh, or maybe they have the foresight to think that it'll be put on blast yeah. on social media, and they don't want to get their DMs full of. All sorts of nastiness. All these arts, or the orchestras, the radio stations, the opera houses will talk a lot about not isolating people or not leaving yep. people behind. Yep. What I hope folks understand, and I've, I made this point as much as I could when, when I was inside of the various buildings. These are the people that you're isolating. What's wrong with that? What's <laughs> yeah. wrong with leaving these people behind? I don't know. The station that I came here from once I got... Uh, into a little back and forth with a listener on the phone and the program director was standing behind me and I didn't know it. And he said, look, I understand your frustration and they don't know what you're up against or, you know, what happened in the moment, but you never know they might get their checkbook out one of these days, you know? So they're treating everybody like it's, like it's a possible donation. And so you, you're supposed to demure, you know, and not, oh, well, golly, I'm sorry that whatever I said or played offended you. And maybe if you s- stay tuned, then s- something will come up that you do like. What, that's, what, that's, the, that's the vibe. What's, what's the name of this podcast? Triloquy. Real quick. Triloquy. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me ask you something. Trill. Do you think arts institutions, I won't even name one in particular. Do you think arts institutions would take that million dollar check? If they knew the person was problematic, would do you do you think an orchestra would take that million dollar KKK check if oh they knew no goodness. one would if they knew no one would find out? That is so on the spot. I'm 
Of course I want to say probably. <laughs> there you go. You see? Well, what? I mean, well, look, look at the... <laughs> so that means the, the institutions very, are problematic. Look at all, look at all of these sorts of, of, of think pieces that are coming out online that we have highlighted on this podcast. Yep. The, all, all the letters like this, W-O-L, this one, and others that we have highlighted on this podcast. Well, with and people writing I, in, talking about how diversity is problematic for them, you know? And, and I, so when I say... Yeah, I think that there are organizations out there, then I'm uh, the bad guy. No, I agree. I agree a lot of these orchestras will take the KKK check, but I also love that folks at the DSO are putting stuff like this let on, me, on highlights. Let me say that they'll probably take it and use it until they get found out. Mm, oh, see, there you go. And, you know, again, triloquy, keep, keeping it trill. Anyone who knows, I, I, I have to remain uh, consistent. Everyone who knows me and understands my history, my personal history with the Detroit Symphony Orchestra knows that I had a very traumatic time as their fellow. I couldn't get out of there enough. I, I attribute my winning a job in Knoxville with needing to get out of there. Wow. Like, wow. I, but I will say that in recent years, you know, with this new programming, um, with the fellowship program that they have revamped, they've been reaching out to past fellows. We've been on uh, Zoom calls and, and all of this stuff, you know, trying to make things better. So effort is being made. So I'm not going to shit on the, the DSO, but I will say that, you know, and I have to be honest, I don't want anyone to think that I'm backpedaling when it comes to mm -hmm. what I've said about my experiences with them before. All of that and good job for y'all. Um, I'm reading from the end of the article here just so, you know, we're naming what this person is upset about. It says, in the newly announced season, the legendary Michigan Orchestra will be championing over 20 works by black and women composers, including music by Florence Price and Hannah Lash, and a classical root celebration with jazz trumpeter and composer Wynton Marcella. So they're mm. going to have some blackness in there. We'll see what that does for their audience because of the audience you know, does it diversify them? What, what you doing? Right. What, what, what we doing? Uh, last time we were in Detroit, you know, going back to that Sphinx competition, one of the things you noted was that you just loved the general soundtrack of oh, the I city. Oh, I love Detroit. Going, I going was feeling Detroit. There. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It just had a vibe that I liked. I love the architecture. Um, we had a ball when we went and got snowed on uh, going over to that GM mm -hmm. building. That was uh, the whole downtown area. I understand is different now than when you were there. Yeah, but I don't know. I was feeling Detroit. Give us a give us our uh, transition music into the second movement. What sort of this? Well, what's a sound of Detroit? You, oh well, there was about? there was every speaker had a Motown track coming out of it. It seemed like you know whenever you go into a Starbucks or a restaurant or whatever. And I remember being there in the hotel lobby and sliding up to the <laughs> cash register to order my latte when Have You Seen Her by the Shy Lights was playing on the speaker above me. Sliding to the shy lights and sliding into the second movement here where we're going to strike a chord and talk about the music that moved us this week. Uh, because we were so busy smoking weed last week <laughs> before 20, there's a birthday that we didn't celebrate that I want to celebrate this week. Uh, the late, great 
Luther Vandross, his born day is 420. And when we talk about classic American composers, black classical music, Luther Vandross, I mean, period, is definitely in there. When you think about uh, Luther Vandross, when you hear that name, what is, uh, because I, I, I know there's like fast, upbeat Luther, but I think most of us think about more of that laid back. 100%. Sort of. Isn't that the cliche joke, too? Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you're going to go and get with your significant other, you got to get the Luther Vandross CD. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course. And, you know, and all the years that I was a mobile DJ, here and now was w- without question th- the wedding party dance mm-hmm. you know it seemed like nine times out of ten that was the one that they picked to have everybody come out and dance together yeah i think that's the one that i think of uh instantly the other tune i think of it's a later luther vandross composition uh dance with my father that's the one that just always touches me mm. it's a song about you know your dad being gone and uh one of the most touching parts of the song is towards the end. It's it's basically Luther Vandross singing about praying, and he's praying on behalf of his mother, you know, to God that, you know, if there's any way for you to bring back my father, you know, not just for me, but for my mom. I forget the, the lyric, but... I know I'm praying for much too much But could you send back the only man she'd And anyway, with with Luther Vandross, as I mentioned, it wasn't all, you know, slow and just, you know, sappy and all that. There there was some upbeat stuff. So Mm -hmm. as I was revisiting uh, Luther Vandross's catalog and uh, reading more about him in in honor of his birthday, I came across a couple of instrumental, so-called classical renditions of his music. And my favorite was a violin flip on the Luther Vandross composition, Never Too Much. I wanted to um, share that in this second movement. This performance features Dominique Hammonds. I'll have a link uh, to the full performance in the uh, description of this. But here's a here's a little sample of this flip on Never Too Much by the late great Luther Vandross. So you probably didn't watch any of the Oscars, did you? Didn't catch this one, no. <laughs> I'm not surprised, but I had to ask. I didn't either, but... Um, I was curious to to see who won. I did see um, the movie Soul, which we have not talked about on Triloquy. It won Best Score, I believe, and mm. um, there, there, was, there was some other very important uh, black wins. They said Glenn Close was doing the butt. Yep. Truth. Don't get me... I'm, it's, that's problematic. But that's not why we're here. What what music you yeah, you, you bring? She, she still she still didn't win, but um, did all so, that and didn't win. A lot of uh, 
a lot of uh, a lot of people were expecting Chadwick Boseman to get a posthumous Oscar for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anthony Hopkins got it for uh, The Father, which an- another film yeah. I haven't seen. But Branford Marsalis did the soundtrack, and there are loads of tracks on this that just put you in mind of that old school record player that you see uh, from the 30s and 40s, that Victrola record player with a big horn sitting mm-hmm. on the top, you know, in the 78 speed records and all that. The only thing missing as I was listening to this was sort of that pop and hiss that you got from it. But, um, and uh, there, there's one track in particular that relates to one of the stories being told about a preacher that goes to minister, a black preacher goes to minister to a small town congregation and they tear up his Bible and make him dance mm-hmm. and all the sort of demeaning things like this. And that track is called Reverend Gates. was the real life Ma Rainey. Mm, blues singer and uh, she was credited as mother of the blues. Mm. Uh, played by Viola Davis in uh, in this film adaptation. Uh, she was nominated but did not win. Who so. who had the guitar? Uh, I'm I'm blanking because of late night. Who had the guitar named Lucille? Oh, BB King. BB BB King. I'm picturing BB King in the chair of the architect in the Matrix. If I'm the father of the blues, she is undoubtedly its mother. <laughs> <laughs> Very Shout good. out to um, uh, Ma Rainey. It's interesting that you bring in that tune, Reverend Gates, um, because Titus and I, the guest today, we kind of uh, wrap up our conversation talking about what the new black church could be. During the civil rights uh, movement and, and before, the black church was kind of that central place for right. black conversation and, and black organization. So one of the things that Titus and I talk about um, is what is that new black church? What are those new black spaces, especially where black artists can strategize and meet and talk? We get um, into a little bit of that. Mm. Titus, um, as we've mentioned, um, is a a recent Emmy winner. We talk a little bit about um, how he's getting into film a little bit. Of course, principal oboist of uh, the Nashville Symphony. We get into a little bit of the uh, oboe talk. So always great to hang out with Titus. you, You touched on it a little bit in the announcements. You've met um, Titus, what 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 are your some of your memories of of Titus? Well, I remember his thoughts on firsts. <laughs> as far as what do you mean by firsts? Well, from a radio perspective, I can remember frequently saying things like um, William Grant still was the first two blah blah blah. blah oh, the, okay, yeah. Florence Price the first two. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Titus is ready for some boring. <laughs> stories about black people. You know, yeah. and and I see what he's talking about. It is important to be the first person of of any yeah, race to do something. Yeah. But don't hang the whole reputation on that. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. There's there is more. So, uh after hearing after talking with Titus when we met uh in tw- early in 2020, I immediately changed the game on all that. I used hmm. first as a vault point and then focused on something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, but 
also just the warmth. Um, he did seem like he, he treated me like he knew me, even though he didn't. So I appreciated that. It must have been your, um, your, uh, Black proximity, your bl- black approximate. So are we, are we? Are we talking about you now? I'm joking. Hey, Scott, if that's I'm kidding. if that's what if that's what it took, then that's what it took. No, Titus is one of the homies. So I, I really appreciate Titus coming back uh, to Triloquy to get us in uh, to uh, my conversation with him. Well, I'll say uh, what we what we begin talking about. The first thing I asked him was. Uh, dealing with the noise of it all. James Baldwin talked about moving to France because with racism and Jim Crow and everything, he couldn't think enough to write poetry or or any sort of other prose, so he went over to France. So the first thing I asked Titus was, how does he deal with all of the noise, especially considering what's uh, going on? So that's where we start. To get us there, um, I thought I would share a Titus Underwood performance. This is uh, his performance of a tune called Principal Brothers Number no. 2, a composition by James Lee III. There's two ways that I kind of internalize things. Of course, it's hard to not see what's going on, right? It's hard to not see. I mean, Minneapolis is hot. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, you know, and I just saw a map of, like, where Philando Castile was, where Dante Wright is, and where um, George Floyd is. And it's kind of, you just kind of look at that. Yeah. You know I mean, so f- for me, I try my best to use what I do well through art and through what, how I play and through my words uh, to try to push forward and how I how I think, man, it's just you know I try my best to be at home, be with my fiance, and just be in our space. Mm-hmm. To be honest, because home that's where my that's where I get my peace. That's where I get my quiet. And I try my best to have as much peace and quiet in my private space as possible. So I do have something to give because if I'm always on ten, you know, it's hard for me to to formulate like what I'm going to say in response to something or create something that's going to move us in a direction where we actually get to tangible action items. So it's, 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 it's like how much of it, it's not, it like James Baldwin said, you can't be a remote, even remotely conscious black man and not be angry mm-hmm, all the time. Mm-hmm. But like, how do I manage that? How do I still have my self care? How do I still have my peace? Because that stress will literally kill you. Oh yeah. Like that stress that, <laughs> That high blood pressure is real. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Telling people like, take that time to really think. Take that time. Look, do stuff like I meditate actually, mm-hmm. and I and I and I and I go for I go for long bike rides when I have the time to just no music on and just ride to clear my mind because I I just want black people to remember to take care of yourself. Yeah, yeah. Like take care of yourself. Don't don't let this stress. And I understand that it may sound selfish, but you have nothing to give. You don't take care of yourself first. Yeah, absolutely. I remember uh, around the last time we spoke, 
COVID was beginning to be a thing for people and the Nashville Symphony had recently announced that, you know, the 2021 season was not going to happen. I was yeah. I was scared for you. I, I'm not going to lie. Mm. I was like, oh, my God, what is Titus going to do? I, I, I worried. Mm. I, I was specifically thinking about you a lot. But things I mean, look at look at goddess as I've been. Look, I, I know. <laughs> look at guys straight up. Look, man, 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 we come from a culture. You know, that saying make a way out of nowhere. Yeah. And it's like. You know, man, I, I was surfing for 10 years on that audition circuit. I had to know how to survive. I had to be creative. Yeah. I had to be resilient. I had to have fortitude. So I'm not just going to sit and, and I, I'm, although I, I do feel bad for people that have suffered, I feel bad for people who have been busy. I am particularly blessed to have been busy during this time. Yeah. I'm particularly, my heart goes out to people that a lot of people have suffered during this time. So I'm like, well, I'm shining. Why aren't you shining? Like, that's the dumbest thing to say. But at the same time, I, I really, I'm really just an artist in general. I want people to think about other creative ways. You can't push to the same thing is not going to happen. There may be aspects of the same that may be there. People need familiar ground to feel grounded mm -hmm. and rooted. But you have to think innovatively. Like, you know, I'm thinking, what does the future look like? And what and what do I want the future to look like? Can I can I be a part of that shaping? When I think of when I think of like people being like protesting or wanting to see something i say if i'm given a vision for something maybe the response that i want maybe i have the vision for that to feel that that need then i need to act and then once you act and put the vision out there or put out the 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 thing that you're solving for then you get the response you thereby your design you're creating the the response of what you want to see in the world and it inspires other to build in that way that so I, I look yeah that that black imagination that that more diverse aesthetic you're speaking to mm -hmm. is uh in vogue it seems yeah. I, I, one of the things I, I wanted to make sure I got to was your your Emmy win I mean the the blackness that you infused into that project really manifested mm -hmm. into something in, in, incredible we must be getting somewhere right 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 we must <laughs> be getting somewhere look I, I I tell people like you have to your advantage when you operate within your culture. You are you advanced when you operate within your culture. When you're just simulating, right? When you're just um, being like someone else, you're never, ever, ever going to operate in your complete. Uh, you're not going to optimize mm -hmm. your functionality in society or as a as a, as an artist. You can't. You won't be realized. Like that's fully. my story. Exactly. So for me, as a black artist, when I say when I say I play black music, that's that to me is me culturally affirming myself. And people are like, why you say that in opposition? There's no opposition. This is me saying I have space. When you go, when you see a restaurant, you know, if you see a Thai restaurant, like, why does it say Thai on it? Because it's Thai food. Mm -hmm. That's why it says Thai on it. So if I'm saying something, this is me saying who I am. This is my culture. This is what informs me. And that's what I want to see in the world. And I want to affirm other young people to show that, you know, there are newer things. If you're functioning in your culture, like, Really, my craft is what opens the door. My creativity is what broadens the spaces I can go into. So that's how I really, really think about how I want to do it. I study, and here's the thing that I see a lot of, some some people tend to miss, is that I study other Black artists of the past. Yeah. I study them. I know that I'm not the first one out here creating new aesthetics. I see where, you know... George Walker and Hellstuck and all these guys was doing uh, and with their album covers and stuff. Right, right. I see what they were doing um, with like the art form and how they were presenting uh, 
you know, their music. I saw with Margaret Bunz, she said she's writing for the people. What does that mean to me? She did it before I did. She spoke for the people before I did. You know what I'm saying? So, like, if I'm talking about William Grant Steele and, I'm, and, and people talking about, you know, the legacy of slavery and freedmen and Jim Crow and how we come into, you know, priest brutality and all these things in this country. Like, Steele's talking about a new race, like how it has right. been the Negro experience with the Second Symphony. Right. Like, people in this space have been writing about this already. So, it's, it's for me to come in like I'm the new child, then I am cutting myself off of that ancestral link, which actually gives me more ground and more strength to create the art that I do today. What was your red pill toward all of this? I often think about our times back in California. I feel like yeah. academic institutions back then, even not all that long ago, were more violent than they are now at least the conversation is yep. is is being had also yep. considering that you know different people even the different black people are on different parts of the journey you know yep. what what was what was that impetus for you what what helped you push uh push yourself into this new space were you always in this space did i just not know this titus in los angeles <laughs> i think we just didn't know our, our each other in los angeles that well because we played in what um in ays ays yeah 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 yeah. A little bit in debut too, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I, I subbed in there a few times. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we played a little bit in AYS, a little bit in debut. And at that time, I was still who I was. I was, I, I remember people thought I was some radical. <laughs> I mean, I was like this everywhere. I'm like, dude, when I first got to CIM, I had like red, uh, black, and green locks. Like it was dyed on the end. Yep. Like I came from that. I came, I was. I was literally put in the principal's office when I was in third grade because I love this African medallion that my uncle brought from New York City. And then I told my teacher that Christopher Columbus didn't discover America. And she said, that's racist. <laughs> what? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so you've been at what? it for a long time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've been at it. I've been at it. For a long time, because my, my family instilled in me who I was. My family instilled in my culture. I knew who I was. I was proud of who I was. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it wasn't something that just dawned on me. As far as, like, how active I am in this space, to be honest with you, there's a couple phases that happen. So, one, I was just grinding, trying to get a job, right? I wanted to work. I wanted to play mm -hmm. in orchestra. I like I like creating the sound. I like I know I disagree with a lot of things, but I like creating the sound. I need to land somewhere. I need to pay my bills. I need I've I've gained this skill set, and I need somewhere to go. I need somewhere to do it. And I enjoy playing the music, but the, the space I always felt like odd in the space, right? And and sometimes I felt okay in the space, depending on the day. So it isn't like I'm saying, like, oh my goodness, I'm feeling tortured here. But it, sometimes I was like, man, this could look a lot different. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not into that. Oh, I have to be the first type of thing. And then the second thing, as far as black repertoire is, I have to say, I have to give my hat off to one of my friends, uh, Fred Onovo Sueke. He's the guy who wrote the, the, the Lift Every Voice, uh, amazing composer. He really changed my life in a lot of ways on how I thought about black composers and black music. And me and him met, I think five or six years ago, something like that. And um, that's when my mind really was open to like all of this. I knew of the repertoire, but I didn't know it to that extent and that depth. And when I started talking to me and having conversations, it, I went down this rabbit hole and just really studying and knowing what this, before it became popular, before people were like, you need to play black repertoire. And I was like, why don't we play this music? Yeah. Like, I don't understand. We have people who are, who are writing the sounds of our experience. You would say that Shostakovich wrote the sound. You can feel USSR. You can feel that Stalin mm -hmm. regime in his music. That people wrote the sounds of our of our experience. So why aren't we playing that? 
but that would be a cultural export out of America in the orchestral space. So then that shines light on the orchestral space. Because then you have to talk about the stories of why these people haven't been played and why American orchestras haven't played these people. And then you realize that all the major orchestras were founded in Jim Crow. Mm. Mm-hmm. No legacy orchestras founded outside of Jim Crow. We got a lot of questions. The thing is, is when you bring up black music in this country and the story of it, you got a lot of questions to ask. That's right in your face. They have not been fixed. So I realize why a lot of this music has been played because there's a message that's attached to it. So that was my time. Those two instances, like one, I grew up in that, that what people call woke now. I grew up in that. Right. That's why I can just right. pull on the history of it because I was taught that history. Y'all was watching Eyes on the Prize series when I was young. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? My parents like, you watching your eyes on the prize. <laughs> I remember that growing yeah. up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So... That is home to me. That is my space. So there wasn't an awakening necessarily. It's more I kept evolving and my language kept getting more refined for the experience I was in. And also my language kept getting refined on how do I speak publicly about this or just privately. Because a lot of us are fumbling in private, like trying to put together an idea or something. People are like, well, I don't don't think you're landing quite right this way. And then I started reading more as an adult. And then I started having experiences as an adult in this field. Because when I was in conservatory, you would get the illusion of inclusion sometimes in the conservatory. Because my teachers always covered me. They always just taught me. Right. They're like, it's Titus. You come in for your lesson. Here's your read lessons. And they wish the best because you attached to them. Mm-hmm. So I never had any teachers in my experience have any teachers treat me badly ever. But let me but as far well, but let me let me ask you this though. For the mm-hmm. person who grows up in that black awareness and for the yep. person who comes on late, it has to do something to the psyche of a person to be forced to traverse what I will now call these Jim Crow institutions. You know, you describe mm-hmm. all of these as, you know, being uh, 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 have found foundations in that point in history. It has to mm-hmm. do something to the black psyche and ultimately the output of black art if, you know, mm-hmm. we're forced, you know, square pegs into round holes. The, the, mm-hmm. the, the, there has to be damage there, generational damage. Right, right, right. I think one of the hard, this one thing I realize is, and I feel like my thing is still evolving on it, is anything that's in this country, black people have a right to it. Anything that's in this country. Yeah. I mean, that's why people say pri- primarily white institution. Not white institution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's no law that you can say whites only. I mean, there are lots of laws that show red line and all this stuff and all the capital that's been put within the white community. But the thing that I'm talking about is when it comes down to the art space or you going into classical music, there is going to be some major distance there because you're not being culturally affirmed. And it does just do something to the psyche if you don't keep a piece of yourself. And even when you keep a piece of yourself, it does something to the psyche, right? Because there was one thing I was talking on this other podcast. I said, first black person amongst whom? Right. Exactly. Like, I'm not the first black person to play the oboe. And I'm not the first to play it professionally. William Grant still played professionally oboe. He was a fantastic oboist on Broadway. Is he not a first? I mean, is he? You know what I'm saying? So, like... There are black people who've played oboe for decades. So I'm the first to have tenure in the major symphony orchestra, but where's where's the progress necessarily? Is that that's my life. 
But how is that for the group? And I understand what it signifies. Here's the thing. I, want, I don't want to downplay that, right? I don't want to downplay people looking to that as something that's an accomplishment. Because it is, in fact, an accomplishment. But is that a signal of progress? Is right. That's what I. That's why I have the dissonance. And an accomplishment as defined by what? Another thing that right. I wanted to throw at you today was, you know, the idea of this white validation. I'm, I'm so thrilled about your um, Emmy win right now. Uh, Triloquy is in the middle of a, a a New York Times shout out that I'm 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 really enjoying. You doing it? You doing it? You doing big? And, doing, I'm trying to be like you when I grow up. And, oh please, <laughs> and. <laughs> What 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 if we didn't need the validation of these these white led institutions? You know how how do you how do you traverse that in your work? Con- considering that you know we want the BET.coms, we want the essences, we we want all mm-hmm. of these media outlets to pay attention to what we do uh, what we're doing. Is there no progress mm-hmm. when uh, that uh, that validation that applause comes from uh, these these white led institutions what 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 do you think about that when you uh when when you consider your successes or so called successes maybe we should say right 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 i mean do i think you know getting the emmys i mean it's amazing getting the emmy i think it's great where, where, I'm where excited are you putting it, it by the way where is it going to just sit Man, it's just sitting here on the desk. There it is right there. Okay. It's like wow. next to this thing right here. It, this this is what it's sitting next to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and a lamp. That's <laughs> so awesome. Wow. It's really funny. My fiance be like, oh, you just put that right there? I'm like, yeah, it's right there. I mean, for me, awards is great. And, I, and I, you know, but it's like, okay, cool. You know what I'm saying? Are we purposely trying not to be excited? Maybe I, I should ask. Are, are we trying you know to be too, really funny? are we trying to do too much? <laughs> you know what's really funny though, Garrett? Like, I because I'm always looking forward, I have a hard time being present. That's me being keeping in a buck. Like I get excited, like Emmy good. Then I'll be like, what's next? Like, what's the next thing? And what's next? Cause I don't feel like I'm at the place where I want to be. I want to keep creating. I want to keep moving forward. I wanna see what I want to see in the world. You're reminding me of see- you're reminding me of Kanye. He said, I'm living in the future, so the present is my past. <laughs> One of my friends used to call me Kanye, but old Kanye. Let's not talk oh, new okay. Kanye. <laughs> I take it six billion dollars though. Sure. But my, my my thing that I'm saying is is I, I when it comes down to the Emmys or the the recognition, look, there's some people who just want to rec- want to celebrate that, and it's cool. And some people say, like, "Oh, well, he's going to this. He went to this school or whatever." I mean, a lot of these legacy institutions have had great people in them. Mm-hmm. A lot of talent's been there. But a lot of times there's always going to be a dissonance with it because has America treated us fairly? No, it hasn't historically treated us fairly. And do we have a do we have right to these places that are in some of the best real estate in town? Yes, we do. Like become the power of these places. And then it's just it's a predominantly white space that can become a predominantly black space. Just like that, depending on who's there. But the thing is, is like ideologically, how does it align? Those are the things that give the rub, right? So it isn't when I have these accolades and things like that. Am I excited about it? Yeah, sure, I am excited about it. But one thing that does excite me the most, I say, I really want us to build things that we value ourselves. Yes. That's the part. That's the part that and you you can go out and get the Grammy. You can go out and get the the Emmy and all that stuff. Cool, stacked it up too. Get it all, whatever. But I don't want it to be absent of you not valuing the same as you're yeah. creating something for your own. Yeah. That's why I have the problem is that you need to, if you want to get, you know, a pair of Louis Vuitton shoes or, or whatever the case you want to be, or you want to get a coat that's really cool from, from a coach or something. 
I don't really care for those brands, but get something <laughs> by Kerry Jones, right? Yeah. Get a dope bomb jacket. Spend fifteen hundred dollars on or two thousand dollars on a Kerry Jones jacket if you're gonna get some Birkin yeah. bag. Like just go support those black artists. I'm not saying that you can't get this over here if you need to scratch that itch, right? But I always do. I always do a two to one thing. If I'm gonna get one thing that I really like in this market, in the main market, I'm gonna get two things in the black market. Yeah. That's just how I usually do it. That's how I do it. I'm not saying everyone else has to do it that way. But if I'm playing black repertoire, I'll, I'll play something traditional that I like. Why I, I can play whatever I want to play. But at the same time, I know this is a time where I really need to be pushing for black composers because we need to be canonizing that first. You know, when the Russian ballet came here, they brought the Tchaikovsky here. Ballet Russe, they, they brought that stuff here. And they kept doing it over and over and over and over again. Now that every freaking Christmas, you got to hear Nutcracker. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, we got to do it. We, can we get some black nutcrackers? Like, can we play it over and over again to get us some classics? That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying you can't participate in that, but you need to also find value. It's in being alternative. It should, because when you operate in that culture that yours, that you're familiar with. Yep. And here's the thing that I feel people find interesting. You, may, you brought up something that I thought was very interesting. That, you know, a lot of institutions are asking black people to talk about their experiences for free. On these universities and stuff. I've, I've often said none of us can afford for any of us to do that for free. Exactly. I agree. And check this out. Just because it's easy for you to, not easy, but just because it's more natural for you to talk about doesn't mean that it doesn't come with a great price. Right. A, great, a greater price than having learned that stuff in school, in a classroom. Exactly, We're talking about lived experience, ex lived oppression. Lived experiences. People pay for people's lived experiences. So my point is, if you just because you may be able to vocalize easily, eat more easily within a William Grant still piece, doesn't mean that it's not that adds more value. Right. That means someone has to learn how you do that. How did you do that? You know what I'm saying? The Viennese walls, how they do that in in Vienna, it's just, it's a feel. But they grew up in that stuff, so people pay money to know how you do this. You have that same value in your culture. Yeah. The same exact thing. But because black art has been just hoard out and people say, oh, we, this is ours, that's ours, this is ours, this is ours. It seems like it's for up for grabs. We give it out for nothing. Yeah, yeah. So that, it, value it. That's the biggest thing. Value your culture. You can have all the accolades. It's cool. If you want to get a Grammy, go out and get it. I'm not going to stop you from doing it. But don't you dare say that the essence of word is less than right, right, right. Absolutely. I want to you, you're talking about buying from uh, black designers and, and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. I, you know, I would love to buy a Basquiat right now and, and put it on my wall. I'm not oh, I'm oh not quite God. there. I'm not quite there financially. I would have a Kenyan Wiley. Can you, can, you, can you paint me, bro? Can you paint me? Just land on the right. Timberland boots like you do. Can you paint me? But <laughs> uh, what you made me think about, you know, before we move on, just a side note. I've even gotten to the point to where, you know, I, I love my Hennessy, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll buy two Doucets at the same time, you know, trying to keep things black and, you know, trying to keep it 100 with, with, with Memphis in you yeah, right there. I, I know, but, 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 but there are ways at every level, I guess is my point to really oh, yeah. support black and, and, uh, and value black where we can look, I, I can't really imagine uh, that you are going to sit in an orchestra, listening to a conductor telling you what to do for too much longer. Mm -hmm. have, have you thought mm -hmm. about expansion? Have you thought about what might be beyond sitting principal oboe in an orchestra? Are you trying to give out my secrets now, Gary? <laughs> hey, specifically <laughs> no, I, or generally? Um, 
generally do I, look i enjoy playing the orchestra i think at this point i love playing the orchestra is great i want to push it towards something that's that's more innovative but i do have other things that are in the in the docket you know that i'm creating um yes i've been created let's put it this way well before we get so but, but before we get too far i'll, I'll ask you specifically yeah. you are ready to sit down and play a Brahms symphony you 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 have that in you i don't know if i have that in me at this point i, I can sit down and play a Brahms symphony sure but check this out. I would like to play the Negro Folk Symphony more. Her. I'm more ready to play that. <laughs> hear you. I I'm more hear you. ready. Can I? I was just listening to Warren Grant Still's Second Symphony. That's why it's on my mind. Yeah. And it's stuck in my head. Some of the tunes are stuck in my head. It's a lot of earworms in it. Um, the question mark that, that that symphony ends with, you know, that last right. note in the high strings. Yeah. Right. And it's so beautiful. It's so lush, too. And and I, I want I want to play that. I, I, I want to play... Um, what is it? Um, Nathaniel Detts, uh, uh, I can't think of it. It's his oratorio, Moses. Uh, I can't think of it right now. But those are the pieces I really, yeah. really want to play because they excite me right now. I played all Brahms symphonies. And it would be nice to play another one, but I, I, Brahms is my guy. I love Brahms. But you know what? I My favorite composer right now is Nathaniel Dett. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's my favorite composer right now. Yeah. I love, I listen to his piano music all the a time. A Tennessee connection there. Did you know that? Jackson, Tennessee? I did not know Yeah, that. he taught for many years uh, in, in Jackson, Tennessee, about, oh, well, I don't know, 90, 90 minutes from where you are right now. Wow, that's what's up. Yeah. I mean, I love Nathaniel Desmond. Dawson, I think he's arguably one of the greatest composers ever, if not one of the greatest of the 20th century. In my opinion, I think his writing is incredible. I think he's in a tier of his own. So... For me, those are the things that really excite me. And you know what, Gary? I was thinking today, and this is why, you know, the word representation matters. <laughs> um, I found myself falling more back in love with the art, the sound that caught my ear when I was younger, when I started hearing the sounds that are familiar with, to me, within the art form that I participate in. So when I heard the Dawson Symphony for the first time a few years ago, I was blown away. Yeah. I've never listened to a symphony twice. Like, I never said, let's run that Beethoven's three back. I've never done that, mm -hmm. even though I've really enjoyed it. And I've been moved by it. But, like, I was like, it's it's like something, they write the sounds that speak to you, to your core. You know what I mean? It's like some of my friends who, some of my Russian friends would be like, man, I love when we play Shostakovich. It, it just moves me in a certain way. And I, I get that feeling. I, like, I get that. Like, there, there's more into the joke, you know what I mean? Yeah. There's more into the conversation that I'm in the, the inner circle of this cultural signaling that's happening. And and it's a beautiful thing to be a part of that. So I'm excited to make that music because that speaks to me very, very deeply in a way that it's like me and Dawson are like sitting down and he understands me as a black woman. I understand him as a black Conduct, and I understand that lineage which we come from, survivors in this country. And you're so brilliant that you were able to collect sounds and put them together that 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 paints a picture of that, that resonates with me, mm -hmm. you know, 70 years later. That's amazing. So for me, I it's, it's like, you know, if a Jewish person hears a klezmer tune come in the middle of a Mahler symphony. Right. It's like, I can experience that, but they're in on it. You're in the inner circle, which is cool, and I love to observe that. But then when I hear this Dawson, I hear this price, so I hear this, this, this steel, I'm in on the inner circle then. Yeah. And the thing about classical music, it never let us in the inner circle. 
you can you can like the music, you can play it, and you can be, oh, I love playing Bach and all this stuff. But like, and I would love to hang out with Bach. Yeah, I would love to kick it with Bach. Like, bro, how did you come up with these fugues though? Mm-hmm. But when I talk to Dawson, it's just like that's the uncle at the barbecue who happens to write dope music, and like this is, and that and that's where the value is, right on the inner circle. That's when you be able to face this culture outwardly, where it's not easily duplicated. Because you're in the inner circle. And you can only be in the inner circle if that's your cultural experience and your cultural tie. That's the value. If you put that and put that out to the world where people see it, but they don't know how to do this lean, the swag, the mover, the cadence. That cool factor that we have that hasn't hit classical music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, They've been writing tunes that had this cool in it a long time ago. And I'm saying... Now that we can do direct-to-consumer, now that our voices are being heard, you need to take advantage of that space and then create new spaces and build things so that when it's not just this thing that's like, ooh, red and hot, it sustains itself. So I tell black creators, be proud of what you do. Really learn the lineage in which you come from, the survivors who created this space, and that makes you way more powerful. And, you understand this thing. And, on, and on that, when, when you talk about today's black creators, uh, one of the things I'm really trying to push is really demolishing all of the traditional narratives surrounding that phrase, classical music. When I think about mm-hmm. what we could be considering classical music, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago, everyone was talking about the Earth, Wind & Fire, Isley Brothers versus. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, that is a classical performance. It's black classical, but it's, mm. it's, it's classical, so really exploding that. Um, I, I bring that up because as much as we talk about the of the Dawsons and the Steels and the debts and the bonds and the and and the prices, it's still in a way adjacent to that European model. I've been thinking a lot about the idea of what a true American arts institution looks like, and when I imagine that um, what it would look like from my perspective, I can't help but to see. I kind of touched on this last week on our 420 mm-hmm. opus. We were smoking a little bit, you know how you, you know how your mind goes. It, <laughs> Is you have the purple Urkel, you know, that's a new one. I, I, did, I didn't have the purple, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, when when I think about that concept, you know, uh, an American, uh, uh, an institution that is culturally American versus what mm-hmm. we're looking at now, it's hard for me not to see these institutions as European colonies, European arts colonies in the mm. United States. Am I am I going too far there? I, I thought you might uh, have something. <laughs> something let's let's just dig in. Let's let's dig in on that. Let's dig in on that. I, I love talking about this do i think i wrestle with this to be honest with you man do i think that classical the word classical i have rubbed with that but let's just take for the lack of this let's say so-called classical music i think the so-called classical music is just a vessel in which melodies are developed Mm -hmm. i think this art form the the more you dig the less Eurocentric it becomes. The one that we see today, the way that it's presented, is primarily Western European culture. I would agree on that. The formality of it. Even Steele, with his his symphonies, he wrote poetry that was adjacent to it. Paul Dunbar was one of the, the, the poets that wrote literally Negro dialect mm-hmm. that went along with each movement of his first symphony. Yep. That 
Nobody was doing that. Or the subject of the ballets. I've been listening to Saji all week. You Saji. Know? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's in Central Africa. And that he's that he's created this story. So do I think that the the orchestra itself is uh, is it a white art form? I would say that it's it's just it's a vessel in which people use to create develop melodies and a lot of this art form has collected from multiple cultures to be able to come to this format that it is. I mean, if you think about let's okay, let's take Lassise for instance, right. Debussy. Right. He never wrote a symphony. Never. La Mer is probably the closest thing to a symphony, yeah. but he was like, screw that. I'm going to call it the sea. And then I'm a, one is about waves, one is a play on waves, one is about game. You know what I'm saying? The game of pair. I mean, people started, sorry, that's Bartok, but people started writing things that are different using these acoustic instruments and forms. Yeah. So the way I think of it is, I think you have raw timber, like Nathaniel did. So you have raw timber of like folk song, mm-hmm. and then you can create uh, fugues out of that. You can right, create exactly. a lot of many West African tunes. The reason why I love Fredo's music because it's it's a lot of West African art forms are patterns of rhythms that are we think two four three four five four and duple, and many different West African cultures they think of patterns of rhythm which they mix up and put together which they memorize. Which of course we can also see in the in the clothing in the fashion patterns and how they mix. And- yes. So if you really think about and, and the vibrancy and the different exactly, types of right, patterns. Right, the brightness of it all. Exactly. So if you're thinking about this differently, I'm saying you would take that folk tune that comes from the soil and you would develop into this beautiful fabric of music while using acoustic instruments that may be set for an orchestra or set for a chamber group or set for a duet or whatever the case may be in which we're in a disciplinary art form where we're dedicated to not only just the athleticism to it, but the artistry and expression of it. So that's how I think of it. And I think that's in many different art forms, right? Like if I'm thinking about cadence of different rappers, yeah. or if you really look at an MF Doom album and break down the lyrics on how he uses rhymes, this guy blows my mind. Or the compositions it's, that don't have lyrics even. Exactly. So when I think, I just think this is just another space in which we are familiar with a format, but I am curious to see the future. And this is why I think of the future. I am curious to see if I was in school and then there was a DJ department and there were break dancers there and there was spoken word there and it was a conservatory. But again, to kind and of then, to kind of get us back to that idea of um, arts colonies in America, you know that that uh, oh, that that, that reality. I don't see how that could exist with what we're doing currently as the foundation. Yeah. Okay. Let me, I, I want to add, let me add on. So this is why I think, we, this is why I think black art has a specific place within America. And when I think of America, if I'm thinking about African-Americans who are, I say a new amalgamated group of people who are many tribes mixed together. That's why many of us do our DNA tests like, you're from the Congo and Nigeria and, and, and Togo and Benin and Ghana and but blah, But those blah, blah, boundaries but, were written by the... I mean, we don't have time for that conversation, but yeah. I agree. I agree. But it is many different tribes of people from different languages were put yeah. on plantations together right. so that they wouldn't revolt. Because many revolts were put together because people were in the same tribe. They could communicate mm-hmm. and revolt. This is how Slave Song came a thing in English. 
you found out a new code to communicate because your original language was taken. Yeah. So you did code through language. The coding of how you spoke still stayed. So the way I think of it is, is if you're thinking about American culture and black people in this country, even Dvorak said, you can't take any serious com American composition serious without using Negro melodies. It's a music of the soil. Yeah. It came from the ground. The culture, it was here for hundreds of years. Then you have the American capital, boom, that happens, right? And you have all these immigrants coming to preserve their culture while pursuing an American dream. So you have, and I ask orchestras, are we an American orchestra or a European approximate? Right. Because you're trying to preserve something from an ancestral link that you don't even necessarily identify with anymore. You're calling it an American orchestra. I'll see if it, it's, it's the, the Greek orchestra of whatever mm -hmm. or the, the English orchestra of whatever. You're saying this is the AF of them, that we are in the League of American Orchestras and all this stuff. So if you're talking about American orchestras, what does America look like? What does that culture look like? What is the cultural export of America? Yes, if you're talking about Brahms and stuff, you may be connected to that ancestrally. Mm -hmm. But is that an American outfacing culture? So what culture and tunes were made in America that's within this art form that becomes the cultural export? That looks different. So that's why I say when it, when, when it crystallizes and gets to a Negro folk symphony or it gets to Afro-American symphony or it gets to a new song, a, a song of a new race, when it crystallizes to that point, that's them writing an outward-facing cultural thing out of European preservation space. But you have to think about this while they're writing that. There's Jim Crow happening. Yeah. So there's a stigma with blackness. There's, there's no worth to vet black people. You just came out of slavery. Some of y'all are littering and all this stuff. You do not deserve to be in this place. We're going to put this castle here, this European hall here, and we're going to preserve this because whiteness is great. And whiteness didn't come around to the 1750s anyways. So now we're going to preserve this new white thing. And we're going to also mix it up with this, okay, the white thing is European and all this stuff. And we're recruiting new European groups in the white, okay, Italians, y'all white now, and the Irish, y'all white now, and everyone. So we're going to do more Rossini now. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. We're going to make everybody white now. So we're thinking about a distinct cultural group in America and we're talking about outward fixing culture within this canon. When you start talking about American music, how how are you gonna talk about Charles Eyes without talking about Blind Tom's um yeah. uh what's his uh uh battle of, of Manassas? Yeah. Yep. How are you gonna bring how are you gonna bring up Cal and he's already putting in cluster chords? So you talking about America when I heard about American music, Henry Cow and and Eyes, not no shade on those dudes. They were eccentric and very creative in their space. But how did I not know about the Battle of Manassas? You know what I'm saying? So, like, that's that when you're talking about the American, and here's the other thing, Garrett. I know I kind of jump, jump, jump here. But if you're talking about the American experience, these black composers were writing the American, Scott Joplin, they're writing the American experience. This is the same time where America's pumping out propaganda saying it's the land of the free, home of the brave. We came here looking at, saw slave auction blocks. Other people came here and saw the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. We're telling the the true, full, detailed American story. People who fought in every every war in America, the Civil War. We fought in every war for America, and those people who have that in their DNA, that have seen the uglies, the top, the bottom, the middle of America, look like me. Yeah, yeah. Not to so not if, to mention all of the stories that we will never ever know, mm -hmm. or the ones that we're just now thinking about. What you know, one of the 
unfortunate things, however you want to frame it, that I've been thinking about in light of the uh, Derek Chauvin uh, trial and conviction. You know, there was a a black pianist named Louis Chauvin, who was a friend of Scott Mm -hmm. Joplin's. He couldn't write um, music. He he wasn't uh, uh, this this (laughs) Doucet. He couldn't write. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He was illiterate. He he couldn't really? he couldn't write on the staff and he he didn't oh, he didn't gotcha. have that language so many of his compositions Joplin wrote down and many of them were uh, attributed to Joplin and folks are now learning mm. that it was by this other black composer named Louis Chauvin you know all of these all of these many 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 stories we have to um, we have to wrap up here soon you know we can we can go for hours I have oh, yeah. I have one more question before I get oh, to that. Um, I know that there is a project under wraps. I won't. I won't talk about it. I'll wait for the big reveal. But is there is there anything that you can uh, uh, tease te- tease everybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So I just finished a short film, and the short film I think is really dope. <laughs> and it's uh, just to tell people it's called a tale of two tales. You can you can. There's a lot of depth to it. Um, it is a lot of oboe playing, but there's speech, there's beautiful clothing, there's beautiful environments. I made it, uh, I directed the film, wrote the film, came up with the concept, and I uh, asked a uh, friend and colleague, uh, Titi Layo Ayogande, to to do the, the director of photography for me and help me put together some of the scenes, and she did a beautiful job filming this thing, um, black uh, film director, and I'm also filmmaker myself, so I started... I knew the thing is, is I realized that people have been consuming art differently today and they've been consuming it orally and visually. So orally and vi- that's what's happening. And I knew that this space, I look at the way people move the camera on like uh, Black Messiah, Judas and Black Messiah, yeah. the lean, yeah. the swag that happens. And I study stuff like that. So you're going to get a lot of stuff in this, this new film that's coming out very, very soon. And there is, I don't know how to not stir the pot. <laughs> so it's going to stir the pot a little bit and it's beautiful. Uh, so I'm really excited for it. It's going to be coming out very soon this, 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 uh, this spring. So I'm, yeah. I'm excited as well. I, I, I'll tell the people I got a sneak peek and I can't wait. You did. It's, it's, you did. It's you phenomenal. did. You did. You did get a sneak peek. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I am, I feel like I just want to inspire people to see. Not just black artists, all artists. Do something different. Yeah. Yeah. Use your artistic imagination. And also, to, specifically to my black artists, like, lean into aesthetics that resonate with you. Like, really deep aesthetics that resonate you within this space. Play well, show up beautiful, be excellent, do your thing. You know, so I think that's what this is all about. Like, I want to celebrate who I was completely. And through this film, I feel like I capture a great deal of that. I wanna, and I also play, oh, oh, oh go ahead, go one ahead. other thing. I play, just to tell people, like, I play some Telemann at the beginning, you know, the stuff that I grew up Then there's some James Lee III in there that's jamming. And there's some Fred or some Fredo in there that is jamming. So just to let you know, it's jamming. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah. So, 
Just let not people to, know that. Not to geek out too much, but there are a lot of people who would argue that Telemon takes a backseat to Bach when he shouldn't, and that's why we should be playing Telemon. There, there, there are levels to all of this stuff, you know. There's levels uh, to a lot of I this. Wanna, I wanted to, uh, to wrap up with an infrastructure question and, and also with a, a little pop quiz because you've uh, inspired me. So you've talked about the Afro-American Symphony, the Song of a New Race. What's the subtitle mm-hmm. to William Grinstill's Third Symphony? You know what? I don't know. It's called, that one's the Sunday Symphony, okay? So, of course, we're talking about the infrastructure of the black church and how that was the Mm. safe space, the meeting space. In this 21st century, things are a little different culturally, certainly black mm-hmm. culturally. Uh, for the for the person, for the black person in, you know, Nebraska and, and Idaho and, and Germany, whatever, you know, what is that new church? What is that new space for black mm-hmm. people, certainly black musicians, to meet and exchange ideas? Is that infrastructure there from your perspective? Where would you send folks? Wow. Bro, you be coming with the questions. <laughs> Look, ISBM is a black church for for black people to speak. I think uh, I love what they're doing. Castle gateways. We have new black churches where everybody you ain't got to worry about what they think about you, how you identify yourself, whatever, and we can come together and chop it up. I do think that that is a struggle sometimes. I'm reading this book by Charles Blow called The Devil You Know yep. about black people moving back to the South in mass. And it's a fascinating book. And part of that that terror that we were fleeing from the South called The Great Refuge, the people say the Great Migration, it should be called The Great Refuge, mm-hmm. where then, as Martin Luther King said, we left the terror of the South and went into the project of the North. So that's <laughs> a thing. Was that so much <laughs> a refuge? You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So, like, with that being said, it a lot of those tightly knit communities that was there for centuries were lost and just got more diluted over time. So now we're creating these spaces, these media spaces, these think tanks, these these black cultural groups where we can just have a family conversation. We can have our own cookout. We create our own cookout. You know what I mean? We create our own our own churches. You know because a friend of mine was like, "Titus, you you were past this kid," and he said. Man, you may not preach a Bible, but you preach. Uh-huh. You, we always preach. I was like, that is true. Like, you know, there is something about that that, that I observed growing up that I still kind of do today. And I love bringing people together to exchange ideas. And sometimes it's just meant to have a family conversation. Like, sometimes you want to have your cultural family conversation. And a lot of times when we say black is supposed to be in opposition to something, no, we're just having a family conversation. And everybody's not invited to the family conversation. And everyone's cool. I'm cool with that. You know what I'm saying? I'm not crashing every cultural party saying I should be here yeah. too. There's certain things that they want to keep that sacred in their culture. And that's cool. So I'm saying let we're creating new churches. I'm just saying don't talk too much on Clubhouse, people. But anything. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Y'all be in on clubhouse, being there eating your dinner, just be letting loose. And I'm just like, y'all need to be careful on this clubhouse, okay? <laughs> keep it keep in confidential information where it belongs. Where it belongs. And that is uh in person with the, the water running, the lights are off and the phones are on are turned off and the batteries out the back. Well here here's <laughs> here's to the new black church. Thank you so much, Titus. Here's, here's the new black church, absolutely.
Scott, the biggest thing about uh, uh, looking at what Titus is doing these days, he makes me feel like I need to go shopping. It's, What's that? It's one thing to uh, be the classical musician, so-called classical musician, who has the tucks and tails and all this different, uh, all that sort of thing. Titus has all of the Afrocentric formal wear, so he's really, you know, moving forward. Maybe that's outside of my tax bracket what he wears. <laughs> I don't know, but huge shout out to Titus and thanks again for uh, coming on to Triloquy. I wanted before we got into to the final movement, the Triloquy, I wanted to ask you, Scott, what I asked Titus at the beginning of our conversation. We're talking about everything that's going on. Uh, this is our first time recording since the announcement of the Chauvin verdict. Uh, but then, of course, there's the other three officers. We have the Dante Wright tragedy to still deal with. So they're, you know, aside from everything else um, that, that's been going on across the country. So a lot of noise, a lot of that noise. For you, as it was for James Baldwin, do you think picking up and changing geography would be your means of escaping all of that noise? I, I, I tend to think about what work, what projects I'm going to get into to block it out. Would it take a whole move for you as it did the late Jimmy Baldwin? Boy, that sure sounds nice, doesn't it? That sounds really nice. And I'm not even saying that it would have to be somewhere over in Europe. Okay. I immediately think I need to, uh, it, maybe if I could get in the mountains for a while, Colorado, even just going up to the north end of Minnesota, to be <laughs> away, away from the literal noise, I think that I would be able to figuratively unplug. But it was, it's going to take some time. I, right now, I just feel clenched. Everything feels clenched. My back, neck, shoulders... Sleep is off. It's weird. So how? Do, yeah, I mean, so so how do you think I feel when I get in my car with my expired tags? That's what I'm saying. You know, man, to I'm go sorry. to the grocery store. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I often have been uh, thinking about you know getting away, even for a short time. For me, it can't necessarily be Colorado or or any of these other places because anti-blackness is there too. Mm. You know, uh, Josephine Baker, James Baldwin, so many other people, you know, Nina Simone for a while found refuge in France. I've oh, yeah. often thought about, but then the French are just so French. When I mean, my and, and by that, well, really what I mean is Parisians are so Parisian. Okay. So maybe, okay. Uh, maybe I don't know, maybe a weekend or a couple weeks in Brittany would, would be great. Would you, would you like to join Del and I uh, on the, on the sea? I'll take out a, I'll take out a second on the house and yeah, then we can probably have a good time. Right, right. All right, let's go ahead and get into this triloquy. Juilliard drama gave an exercise. All of the drama students were expected to be present for this exercise. It was um, a first part of a three-part workshop. Not everyone came, but the students who did come were subjected to listen to an auditory imagination experience of slavery. Meaning that on our Zoom screen, on my Zoom screen, were fellow students, but faculty, staff, and the director of my division acting out the, the journey and experience of slavery. You just heard from Marion Gray. This week's triloquy, this week's final movement, we have to touch a little bit on Black trauma. So if you don't know, uh, the Juilliard School, the theater department, back in September, created this sort of sound experience for the students for 27 minutes to put them, uh, in the words of the presentation, in the pool 
of slavery. Now, I guess their idea was to prepare these students for um, this most extenuating of circumstance, if that is a role they have to take on. If, if there's a movie or a play where somebody is a slave, I guess that was their, their means. Um, I agree with um, the backlash to this, that this was highly inappropriate and very traumatic. I don't have the theater background. You have the theater background. Yeah. Do you think there is any way to paint this in a positive way? Spending 27 minutes listening to Run, Inner, Run, and and all of this stuff to that put was, people in the in the mindset of, like, is, is there any... That was terrible. Is, is there any sort of un-nonsense about this from your perspective? I told you before, and I'll reiterate here, that I see no reason for them to have done that. I don't understand what... I, I mean, I know you said you thought it was to get them ready for the roles of and slaves. And not that that's okay. But there was white people in this classroom, yeah, too. I imagine. I would have been offended if I was forced to sit and listen to that. Yeah. What, yeah. And, 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 and I got confused... Because I thought that they were listening to something that was part of some diversity initiative, that they were trying to make white people, to put white people in the shackles. Oh, God. You know what I mean? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that they could, to try to inspire empathy. And, I, and, and I'm sitting here thinking, man, that's just, that's just the wrong way to go about it. Yeah. I, I would have I left if I had to listen to that. The, the, let me clarify what I said. When I assume that this was some sort of exercise to prepare them for that sort of role. Mm -hmm. Let me add on to that, that those roles and those movies and those plays should not exist. We, we have it. We have 12 years a slave. We have roots. roots. You know, that was a thing for, for folks back then. We, we have all this other stuff. I think we need to be done in your days on the theater stage. Were there ever conversations about problematic subjects like less? I mean, I, I know that, um, you know, the, the slavery sort of aspect is, is so horrific. Mm -hmm. Let's also consider something like rape or, or something along. The, let, let, let's take that example. Are there rape scenes in plays? Have yes. you ever been involved in a play that had a rape scene? Yes. How does a man prepare for a rape scene? It's How does a terrible. teacher teach that to uh, an aspiring actor what is i wonder what that process is what what are you know what 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 happens there so i mean i, I don't i don't know when i doing it in community theater i was left to my own devices to get there and and then the trouble was getting myself out of that headspace it's not easy and my brothers will tell you that there are times where i was in shows that were about you know, that, that were with touchy subjects or depressing subjects or something like that. And I took it on, you know, mm. that got into my body. And as you were talking about, uh, you know, as we were um, listening to that, um, what, what, I'm it sorry. It was what, a response, a right, student so, response. Yeah, when we were listening to the student response, I started thinking about Eckhart Tolle. Do you know this author? He talks about pain bodies, okay. about how our bodies will, uh, will remember trauma even you know and and we feel it years later even though you know like like right now i think that i'm remembering when my mom got sick and passed and th and that's kind of messing with me mm -hmm. you know that our bodies remember these things and certainly the black people that listened to that production were traumatized by it you know i i would love to hear a response from some of the white people in there what was what 
what what did what was their response? Did they did they go to any of the leadership at the school? I wonder. I wonder. You know, not only just calling out, but offering some solution or some sort of opinion. I think if some sort of acting education, drama education, if that curriculum feels like it needs to go there into these, again, you acknowledge that plays have rape scenes. You know, we talk about plays with slaves or whatever. I, I think it's all problematic. I'm, I'm going to mind my music business. If that is what has to happen over in theater on the slavery tip, there has to be a black person to teach the dramatic past mm -hmm. of slavery as as slavery and depictions of it apply to the history of theater. You have to have a black person in there. There has to be so much care. Again, I, I'm sorry to keep even saying the word rape, but how do you teach that? What is the coaching for that. I, I feel so uncomfortable with something like that even being on a stage. I do think that there are people out there that that do that now, because I know that on movie sets, there is a intimacy coach, you know, to make sure that right. the, the sexy scenes don't... But coaching go... intimacy is very different than coaching violence. Uh, understood. I'm just saying that I know that that exists, so it's entirely possible that the violence coach and also that's sick exists. if that exists. I'm sorry. When we talk about yeah. change in the arts, I feel like that just needs to go away. Mm. I don't want. I don't want to see that. I don't want to see any of that. Um, Marion, in this uh, student response, said that she isn't calling for anything, but I'll call for something. I feel like somebody needs to go. As far as accountability is concerned, someone needs to go because I felt like if I went in there, if I were some teacher administrator at Juilliard and tried to create this oral experience, let's dive into the pool of the Holocaust, being in a, a concentration camp or, or, or something just ridiculous like that, they would have my ass. Mm -hmm. So somebody's got to go. Somebody mm -hmm. at the Juilliard school has to go. Getting us um, into the final uh, triloquy. A lot of people have been talking about uh, the film Billie Holiday versus the United States. For several weeks, I thought about watching that movie and coming on to Triloquy with some sort of review or something because Billie Holiday, you know, for folks who don't know, seminal, seminal artist when mm -hmm. it comes to American music, you know, certainly someone that I would consider a classical artist when we talk about classical uh, uh, American music. Um, Saturday, there was an International Society for Black Musicians virtual meeting, and part of the meeting was discussing this very specific scene from this film, Billie Holiday versus the United States. I won't get into the specifics, but long story short, not only does it depict a lynching, it depicts the lynching of a woman whose children are there screaming and crying, the husband trying to get the woman off the tree, the clan has hung her, and then you have Billie Holiday in her trauma running and uh, potential die almost, you know, uh, diving into her addiction of heroin. So we're seeing heroin use. We're seeing traumatized black children. We're seeing a black woman's body hanging from a tree. They 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 actually show it. Do we need this? Do we need this content with everything that's going on in the world? I don't. Do we need this content? I don't, I don't think we do. I don't think we do at all. How do we show the next generation? Well, like I said, when it, when it came to that Juilliard thing, I think we have 12 Years a Slave, we, a, a movie that I will not watch, that I've seen that I will not watch again. 
We have the roots. We we have all of all of this stuff. I I think we we got it. I I think we got it. Especially considering that this is a movie about Billie Holiday, and of course, a very important moment in Billie Holiday's career was the song "Strange Fruit." So I get right. I get why they're depicting that. But and didn't you say that this was like ten minutes worth? And it's just in the same way that it was 27 minutes and that Juilliard thing. I feel like a lot of these folks just dig into it. Mm. You know, maybe we right. understand okay. that a lynching I, happened, but right. do we just really need to dig there, into okay. the wound? There, I get, I get that. People, part. people have all in a similar way. People have been critiquing the Lena Waithe project. Them, just from what they said on Twitter, I'm not watching any of it. But you said you actually found yourself in front of it for a little bit. I made it 27 minutes into the first episode. They hadn't even gotten into the supernatural esque stuff. No, see, I didn't was even just, know that was an aspect. Well, yeah, it's 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 part of that. Um, it's in the same vein as the H the the Lovecraft yeah okay. uh, project, but but slightly different. I I just couldn't hack. The, the overt racism, I felt like I was being beat over the head with it, and I knew that it existed anyway. And it's hard for me to look at. So, kind of like what you you know what you're saying with this uh, with this Billy Holiday film, I don't need to see it, but we can't forget that it happens. So there has to be some way for future gen- generations to have this made real. What do you think that might be? Yeah, that that's the other side of the coin. Um, I think there are, you know, Dell was uh, telling me the other day, he was reading something, something like 70% of white people live only among white people. Mm -hmm. So maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe this is for them, but it's certainly not for me. Okay. That's a, that's a better point too. I'll, I'll, you know, tying it back to um, Western classical. When I think about, like when I will be on the radio, for example, and I'm and I'm reading or presenting or saying something about Mozart and something he wrote in 17, let's say, 1788. Let, let's just throw that year out there. What was going on in the United States in 1788? And am I supposed to not be thinking about that? You know, based on all of this uh, traumatic ancestral memory and then the traumatic content we have, it's hard not to think about that year 1778 or 1788, whatever I said, and and not think about that. But of course, it would be inappropriate or a little too much to introduce that idea into that space, into that context, right? You know, into this predominantly white space of classical radio, Digging into that wound would be a lot, but when it comes to content that they know black people will watch, digging into those wounds is totally fine. I, I don't, I don't like it. So you know, as well, look at look at um, you know when I was listening to the Ma Rainey soundtrack that led into Queen and Slim. Yeah, same thing. Same, same thing. Why could they? Uh, and we saw that in the theater. Remember, Together, remember yeah. Movie theaters. Yeah. Uh, why could they not have just escaped? That's and, what I was hoping for. Uh, yeah, and I I did feel and, it. Uh, again another lean away. Thing. I thought it fed, it fed into the stereotype of a black man giving him up. I didn't like that very much. Whew. So anyway, um, arts leaders and uh, programmers, everyone, just keep that idea of black trauma in your mind as you're programming certain things, thinking about certain things, putting forward certain initiatives. We don't. We don't need to dig into yeah, those wounds. Yeah, it's a good wounds. point. Certainly, good point. black people don't need to dig into those wounds. You know, on Saturday night, it was late Saturday night. Dell and I uh, cut on uh, Cartoon Network, and they had a, a cartoon on called Black Dynamite. Had have you heard no. of that? No. Nope. <laughs> the episode I saw depicted 
reverse 21st or 20th century reverse slavery. Something happened and all the whites were in chains. How, how do you think people would react to that? That'd be a problem. Oh, but they That'd would, be a problem. They would it? be writing a, a strongly worded letter to the <laughs> GM of the Cartoon Network. But let's not go You too have far. lost my subscription, let's, let's my man. Let's not go too far into white slavery. We don't want to offer any more dubious facts here, do we? Whoops. <laughs> See y'all next week.